0: Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Golcevich.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's a really nice day, but for Oregon, it's actually kind of humid today. So, you know, if you notice the hair's a little curlier if you're watching on Facebook Live, uh, yeah, that's the humidity. Uh, Although I was just talking with a bunch of friends of mine from way back in the day by Zoom chat uh, where they were having a virtual happy hour. Of course, it's a little early here for me. Uh, It's a whole lot hotter and more humid on the the East Coast and Southeast uh, of the country uh, than it is here. So this is going to be a pretty serious show today. Uh, Serious subject matter that's that's before this country. in the whole Black Lives Matter uh, movement, that's you know been brought to the fore uh, with the the horrible uh, killing of, of George Floyd. It's so we got it's going to be a little bit more somber than some of them. And uh, yesterday in our board of commissioners meeting, we approved a uh, board order uh, that's a resolution supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Not supporting an organization called Black Lives Matter, not supporting any manifestos or anything that goes along with that, just supporting the movement. Uh, and it was important to me, and I want to read folks part of the statement and and, and uh, that I read yesterday before I made the motion to approve the board order. Uh, you know the board order, there were words I would have liked to change in it uh, to to be a little bit more accurate and in, in, uh, in describing the current situation, but I chose not to because um, it, it you know it was important just to pass it the way our equity and access committee wrote it because it was their words and and you'll understand after I read this statement why it was important to use their words and not mine um and you know, I, I apologized up front because this is a little bit of a lengthy statement, and uh, it's rather personal. So um, you know, I I, I I clearly stated up front, and I'm not, and I and I kind of ad lived here and there, so it's probably not going to be exactly what I said yesterday. But I stated clearly that I support all of the action statements that were in the resolution and that I fully supported acknowledging that Black Lives Matter, that I supported almost all of the thing as written. If it had been my preference, I would have had a couple edits, but I was choosing to support it anyway. First thing I wanted to do though, is I wanted to talk a little bit about my life and my life's experiences so folks could understand clearly where I was coming from, why I supported this, and where my feelings and opinions come from. My family and I have been in the minority and experienced prejudice. Part of my family crossed the Great Plains as paid Gentile participants of the same wagon train that brought Brigham Young to Salt Lake City. Now, if you want me to translate a little bit for folks, they weren't Mormon. They paid to be on the wagon train to cross to Salt Lake City. The early Utah territory was not a friendly place for those that were not part of the Church of Latter-day Saints. You know, go read some history, it was not a very friendly place. That was my family living in Salt Lake City in those days. My grandfather married into that family was the son of Slavic immigrants that ended up in Utah via Ellis Island mining coal. I grew up in a neighborhood that was 90% Jewish, also as a Gentile. One of my early childhood memories is being one of the handful of children showing up to elementary school. Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. All the rest of the kids in my grade school saw each other every Saturday at Hebrew school or temple. My siblings and I seemed outsiders at school without that additional social connection. In my freshman year at college, I had the good fortune to be assigned a black roommate. Robert was a great guy. Him and his friends introduced me the things like Bootsy in Parliament, and you gotta be a music fan to understand that reference. Um, and it's showing my age somewhat, but they were the leaders and the innovators of the funk movement. But you know, throughout my life I've had many black friends. I even had two black men as part of my wedding party, which consisted of my three brothers and my best friend from childhood, and them. I learned after the wedding that some of the guests would not allow my friends to escort them to their seats, and waited instead on one of my siblings to escort them. Racism was alive and well in North Carolina in 1982 when I got married. Later on in life, I had to plead with my in-laws. My mother-in-law is a first-generation daughter of Italian immigrants. My father-in-law is a World War II veteran whose unit liberated one of the first concentration camps in Southern Germany and witnessed that discrimination level. But I had to plead with them to accept their granddaughter and my niece When she was dating a black man they were ready to disown her and never speak to her again i managed to to calm them down and and get them to accept that and eventually she married that black man and had several children and now my father-in-law who's still alive adores his great grandchildren to this day i know what it's like to be a minority as an atheist in the republican party None of this experience compares to the experience of black people. My religious beliefs are not visible as my skin color is. I can pass and go unnoticed. Black people cannot and suffer outright discrimination like my wedding attendants did due to the visible difference they can never hide. I may be of Slavic descent so named because of the past enslavement of, by many cultures of my, this, my predecessors, but slavery and Jim Crow are not memories of recent generations of my family. I may have been a minority in many situations. Do not deal with people that think that somehow they are superior to me just because of a few genes difference that control skin color. It is unfortunate that some in this country have not risen to the words of Dr. King and learned to judge individuals by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. It is also unfortunate that they have not listened to the, his words about violence begetting violence. I want I fully support this resolution I have great admiration for the majority of the American people that they have heard the words Dr. King and live by them. I also believe that the majority of the more than 800,000 law enforcement professionals in the United States also live by those words. That is why I think it's important that we work on that minority that hasn't learned yet and work on our systems and make sure we're providing the access and, and and working in ways to eliminate racism wherever we can. And that's what this resolution asks for. It supports those folks that are asking for us to understand that black lives matter. And it's not that all lives don't matter. They get that, they understand that, but all lives aren't endangered by inherent racism over a visible trait. That's why I support this resolution. I support the action items in it, which are basically things that we're already trying to do in Lane County. We're trying to make sure we're providing equitable access to government services for all people that there's nothing built into our systems that might cause one demographic group to not get access to our services over another. That there's equal access and opportunity. That's an important work to carry on at this time. And I, and I hope folks understand that when people say black lives matter, they're not saying that not all lives matter. They understand that. It's just that right now at this time with some of these incidences that have happened in our country, they feel as a community, and you have to accept the empathy because unless you are black, you cannot understand what it's like to live as a black person. And we need to have that empathy and understand that they feel threatened. And we should have the empathy to say, we agree with you, your lives matter. Black lives matter. It doesn't mean that I'm anti-police. It doesn't mean that I'm anti-white. It just means I have the empathy to understand that I have not suffered that inherent racism that comes with a trait that always visible i don't understand their experience i've had my own experiences but they're pale in comparison to that daily experience that they've lived so i'm asking folks to have empathy and understand that and understand what our board order did and didn't do the board order did not endorse the Black Lives Matter organization or any other organization that's organizing some of the peaceful protests and definitively did not endorse any of the folks that are participating in the more destructive protesting that's gone on um, but what it did was it empathized with those folks said we understand and we're going to continue working to improve because we're all human, we are all flawed, and we all should be working to improve all the time. And that's why I supported that. So I'm, I'm hoping people understand that. And this was, this is personal to me in a lot of ways. And I, you know, like I said, two of my attendants at my wedding were black men, and. When I found out later on that, they, that folks had not walked down the aisle with them and refused to take their arm or let them escort them to their seats, uh, it's a good thing I didn't find that out during the wedding. It would have ruined the wedding. Uh, I, I, it just, it's just infuriating to me that people can be that small and that ignorant. But then I have to think I need to have a little empathy for those folks. That ha, you know. How, can you, how small is your world? that you're allowing something as as superficial as skin color to have to deny your exposure to some really great people in the world and and to that part of humanity and to somehow think that that there's a s- superiority that that's connected to skin color just I, I don't get it but that brings me to the second part of this, which is some of the calls for reform and of and, uh, uh, police systems, and some of those reform calls have been good calls, but this movement now that's been added on to defund, disarm, and dismantle police forces has gone too far and will actually harm the black community in the long run and harm all communities in the long run. Um, It it was interesting yesterday afternoon um, we had a budget hearing as we're getting ready to adopt our budget for the 2021 budget year that starts July 1st. And, you know, expecting a whole lot of calls, you know, maybe a few about a couple things that are in the budget, but Apparently, there must have been a blast email out to one of the activist groups that's, that's um, calling for the defunding of police, and we've got multiple people testifying in our hearing asking us, the Lane County Board of Commissioners, to reduce the funding for the Eugene Police Department by 30 percent and give that money to CAHOOTS, which is Whitebird's Birds uh, Mobile Mental Health Crisis. Um, response teams and uh, was kind of interesting because obviously whoever sent out that mass email didn't inform the people there speaking to the Lane County Board of Commissioners not the Eugene City Council and uh, you know it was after some of this public testimony one of our staff explained that we don't control the budget to the Eugene Police Department (laughs) yeah and uh, so it was kind of sort of embarrassing for whoever put out that call. Um, And what's really truly embarrassing about this whole thing is one of the things people don't understand is CAHOOTS is funded by a group of of Lane County provides funding to them. The city of Eugene does. The city of Springfield does. I even think the city of Vanita has provided some funding to them. Lane County increased their funding to them a couple of years back so they could get a second van and run a second team. So yeah, we have been investing in that, that mobile mental health because there are a lot of times where the best response is not a police officer, it's a mental health professional. Particularly for some of our homeless population that's quite often suffering acute mental health issues. But that mobile mental health response depends on the ability to call for police backup. It would not exist if EPD and SPD were not there or Lane County Sheriff's Office in Veneta were not there to back them up. We have actually started a pilot program. Lane County got a grant and then invested some of our own funds into a pilot down in the Florence area to do the same sort of mobile mental health response utilizing the Siuslaw Valley Fire District staff uh, as a response team but we haven't been able to expand that into rural western Lane County because once they leave the Florence city limits there's no police backup that they can count on because our rural patrol was defunded eight years ago when we lost our timber money almost 10 years ago actually And we haven't had decent world patrol for a long time. So, you know, as as you think about this concept of defunding EPD, but you want to try and increase cahoots, well, if you reduce EPD's ability to back them up, they can't really respond either. Because the one thing they have that, that keeps that team safe for cahoots is the knowledge that they can have a police officer there quickly which we can't do in rural Lane County right now. Ask the people that had to hide in their bathroom while somebody ransacked their house in Pleasant Hill. Just recently, that was a couple weekends back. Cause we couldn't get an officer there in time. By the time the officer got there, the people were gone. So, um, mental health response. It's dependent on having the ability to call for police response, too. They work together. Yes, it's much better to have that mental health response come first, particularly with people that that's their major problem. And we've done a lot in this county to improve that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Because other thing people don't understand is so much of public safety budgets that you see something going to the Lane County Sheriff's Office or say our parole and probation, and you think all it's about is, you know, uh, tailing and jailing people that are on supervision, uh, ankle bracelets, or um, keeping people in our Lane County Jail. That's not where it all gets spent. So I'm gonna spend a little time here talking a little bit about how we spend our public safety dollars in the show. But I want to take a breath now that I've read my statement and I've, you know, collected myself a little bit because that's a tough thing for me to read. I don't usually talk about myself personally very much. But um, I want to remind folks that this is a call-in show. And I want to hear from you whether you thought we were doing the right thing when we unanimously approved that resolution supporting the concept that Black Lives Matter and making a statement against racism and saying, yes, we're going to continue to work to improve ourselves. But I also want to know, what do you think about defunding the police? In fact, I think Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, has put a poll up on our KRBN internet news talk radio Facebook page where you can actually vote about defunding the police. So far, at least on my post in this program, it seems like it's running about 90%. No, don't defund the police. So be interesting to see what the official poll comes out like. Yeah, uh, right now it's really exciting. It is uh, really neck and neck. It is currently zero to zero. Yeah, yeah. So get on that Caribbean Internet News Talk Radio Facebook page and cast your vote. Do we defund the police or do we uh, uh, keep keep funding the police. I guess a yes is to defund and a no is, is is keep keep spending the money there. Um, but I want to remind folks, we are calling show and the number to get in here is 646-721-9887. And you have to press one because that lets us know you want to uh, ask a question or make a comment or whatever and get in on the show because we actually have people that call to listen because not everybody can get to a computer when the show's live. So 646-721-9887, just press one, that's Robin who you just heard interject there. My call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you wanna get in on the conversation. Because this is a conversation and I actually had a couple people commenting on Facebook and I was like, call the show, let's have a good conversation because Facebook commenting back and forth is kind of limited and uh, you don't hear voice inflection and at least you know, you guys can see me live so you can even get body, uh, you know, postures and gestures and facial stuff. But, you know, typing is only about 10% of human communication comes through the actual words we say. And Boy, it's good to see your awesome T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my Peloton T-shirt that has my, my Peloton uh, uh, name on it, which is, Bose Nose One. (laughs) So, if you ride Peloton and you see some Bose Nose One up there on a ride, M60s, (laughs) that's me. So, trying to stay fit during COVID 19 is is a challenge. And Pellet, you know, I was just darn fortunate that we made a decision to buy a Peloton right before the stay at home orders came. (laughs) Came, So, we weren't on the waiting list for them. Uh, And it's been a blessing having that machine because it's certainly uh, gotten a lot of uh, uh, pent-up steam, you know, good hard workout for an hour, and you can be a lot more relaxed about staying at home. So, uh, and, and, you know, we can talk about stay-at-home phase two stuff, too, if you want. Uh, I'm always curious to see how people think phase two is rolling out and uh, how we're doing with all that, and, of course, you know, Everybody's concerned about all these protests and whether or not people are properly socially distancing during the pro- protest, yet, uh, you know, they'll come and write you a ticket if you, uh, or fine you if you open up your beauty salon a couple of days early. Uh, so we can talk COVID-19 too. But I, I wanna talk a little bit about public safety budgets and, and particularly Lane County and Oregon and how we are actually um, moving the needle in the right directions. And it's something we've been committed to for, for several years now and, and really leading the country in some of this. And I'm talking about the concept of restorative justice versus punitive um, justice in, in the traditional term of, of, you know, lock them up, throw away the key sort of uh, a justice system, you know, where there is a certain level of punishment and um, victim restorations, but you're also going after why did that person commit the crime that they did, and how can we help them to succeed after they've completed their punishment? And how can we maybe even use the stick of punishment to convince them to get treatment and, and, and become whole and, and divert them from that? Paying the cost of putting somebody in prison at hundreds of dollars a day, can we divert them into drug treatment, uh, you know, some uh, you know, support groups and everything else, and get them back whole? and teach them how to be whole and function in society. And eventually, you know, maybe even become tax-paying members of society and contributing. And, um, that concept of restorative justice has been steering, um, public safety work in Lane County, even before I got on the Board of Commissioners. But when I got on the board of commissioners in 2011, I was really concentrated on the on the concepts of improving our public safety system and trying to protect it from being cut back a lot and trying to rebuild it. And one of the ways we've rebuilt that is to do a lot of grant work um, and trying to get grants from the federal government, getting grants from the state. and a lot of that grant work has been to support innovative programs in restorative justice. So when you look at Lane County's budget for the Sheriff's Office, parole and probation, the district attorney's office, it's supporting programs that actually get people whole again and, and get them back into society. And I would challenge anybody to find you know, contact our treatment court coordinator at our at Lane County District Court. Ask them when the next treatment court graduation is, and go sit in the audience and quietly and just listen to, to that graduation ceremony. Because that's one of the things we've done really well here in Lane County is, is stand up and move through these alternative treatment courts with the stick of a prison sentence possibly for whatever felony they got arrested for, or even some in some cases in the city municipal system, it's misdemeanors instead of having to serve the time they can go through you know while doing also victim you know restoration and, and and um all that they can go through this treatment court program where there's a team involved where it's their their defense attorney the prosecuting attorney their parole officer that gets assigned through this court system and um, they get uh, given opportunity to enroll in addiction treatment or anger management, whatever needs there are there. And our um, parole and probation officers are no longer just, you know, used to be that a parole officer basically, you know, tried to find when a parolee was violating their parole conditions and throw them back in the hoose cow. Basically, it used to be what they called tail in jail. Now our parole officers are more counselors than they are law enforcement. They're trained in, in trauma-informed care. They're trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. So they can help walk these people through and teach them life skills to how to deal with situations nonviolently, to ask the right questions themselves when somebody talks to them about an easy way to get money and 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 when they're struggling to make a rent at the end of the month or something like that before the first comes up and, and instead of making the poor decision making the tough decisions. And better decision making than all. Um, all throughout our criminal justice system here in Lane County, that is our objective. And our treatment courts are just profoundly changing people's lives. You know, I've spoken at a treatment court graduation. I've attended several. Every time I go to one of those, you hear from family members and the people that were in them. Because for the most part, the folks that are, end up in these treatment courts are either, you know, veterans that are homeless and they're severely had severe mental illness issues or people that are were way into addiction, full-blown addiction, had been completely, um, you know, uh, you know, lost connections with families, friends, and everything else. And you go to these graduations, and they usually have a, an opportunity for people to. to you know, and once they've done just the kind of formal recognition of each person that's graduating, you know, giving them the plaque or whatever else, and their you know, maybe their parole officer or court officer speak a little bit about them. Then they open it up to the audience to talk, usually. And the family members will come and, and talk about how they got their brother back, how they got their son back, how they got their dad back. Um, you know, heart wrenching what you hear some of these people say you know, how they, you know, they completely lost touch with, with, you know, their mom, you know, they were, they were in a foster home. Mom was off, you know, in full-blown drug addiction on the street somewhere doing who knows what. And now they've got mom back. Mom's managed to get a job. And they're now back living with mom and no longer in the foster system or something like that. You know, it's just, the change in life that happens with a lot of these. And, and I've talked to some of those treatment court graduates years later, after their graduation. And they basically say that saved their life. You know, They were going down a road where they were going to die, either on the streets in full mental health, you know, from exposure, or they were going to die from their addiction or die a violent death because of a bad drug deal, who knows? They were headed towards death and complete, you know, alienation of all their friends and family and die alone. And that, that intervention of the choice between prison, accept help, change their lives. And part of that system is having a parole officer there, an assistant DA there, having jail bed of space available because quite often what we do and particularly in one of our treatment courts is the folks spend 60 days in jail getting, you know, getting clean basically up front before they get released out into residential and other treatment programs. So there needs to be a jail bed there for that 60 days. So when you see LCSO in our budget, part of that's treatment court beds. We have another program that we run with our public safety budget called RLAM, which is Release Lane County is is the the what the what it stands for. And it's a program we stood up with the state of Oregon several years ago when they were in crisis about having to build a new prison because they were bumping up against their prison capacity that the federal government will let them get to. And they needed to be able to release prisoners early from their sentences to try and reduce their, their number of prisoners. And they, we made, came to this agreement with the state where they would provide us the cost of keeping them in prison, so to speak, but we would take people anywhere between two and six months early out of their sentences, if they qual. You know, one of the things is you know they had to qualify. They, they had to not be considered a risk to the community. They had, you know, good behavior when they were in prison and all that stuff. So you know, part of the the program is you know qualifying into it. But we we had a program where they first came into our community corrections facility. Um, and live there for a while, and then they move downward into the sponsors' programs. And sponsors is the local nonprofit that that does reentry programs out of prison here in Lane County. And part of our budget that goes to the sheriff's office also goes to sponsors, you know, through a contract. And saying and. and It also goes through sponsors, through contracts that are with our parole and probation office. So when you see that public safety budget, part of that is supporting sponsors. And that RLAM program has been massively successful in reducing recidivism. The people that come out and go through that early release program because they get a lot of counseling and reintroduction back into society in a good way, Um, rarely recidivate and end up back in prison. The rate of recidivation that, that people that go through our land is minuscule compared to typical people being released out of prison. So great restorative justice programs we're running here in Lane County. And there are multiple places we do this in the system where we try and intercept people that are in our criminal justice system and divert them out of it our support of cahoots where they don't even get in the door in the first place, our support of our 23-hour crisis center, our support of our longer-term crisis center that we're opening up, our support of our new 51-bed housing first facility will be opening in November MLK Commons across from Austin Stadium. There's a way we can take people that are chronically homeless most of them dealing with addiction and mental health issues, and connect them with intensive case management and deal with why they're homeless in the first place and get them whole enough to move on to less intensive housing situations and maybe even eventually on their own. But it's been shown that that housing first model from a pilot we ran saves thousands of dollars Tens of thousands of dollars a year. And and it's just, you know, where we what we've been doing in Lane County. We've added mental health specialists in our jail so that we can evaluate everyone that comes in our jail for mental health issues, work with them on, you know, making sure that they were on meds, that that their meds aren't interrupted, getting them back to their meds making sure that they transition out and warm handoff to our behavioral health people. That's part of our budget for the jail. We have intensive pretrial services. So we try and intercept people as they come in and immediately assess them to whether or not they even need to be held, whether they can be released pretrial. You know, there are so many ways in the system. So when people start talking about defund the Lane County Sheriff's office, Close the jail. You're talking about a lot more defunding the the patrol folks. There's so much more behind that. And so much of it is restorative justice. That I think when people start talking about this, they really don't understand everything about it. So I see that we've got somebody calling in, Robin. Is that somebody with a question or comment for the Bozo show? Yeah, there's one from out of state. He just had a, a quick comment, and we have, and you know, I'll put him live, we have Mike on the line that also would like to speak with you. Great. As soon as the button switches over. All right, Mike, you are on with Jay Bolchevich. Hey, Mike. Yes, sir. I think so. Mike
0: call How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great.
0: Yeah, I just want to point out that, uh, about this whole issue with the police, that people are not taking the time to look at the numbers and know what we're talking about. They're just focused on the emotions at the moment and people's anger towards the video they saw of what happened to um, George Floyd. But the reality of the matter is there's something about something on the range of like 40 million interactions between police officers and civilians on a yearly basis. And I believe the number is about 10 to 12 million of those are between police officers and African-Americans. Now, out of that 10 million-plus interactions, last year about 1,000 led to a shooting. And out of those thousands that were shot and killed, only nine of them were unarmed. And so when you actually time to look at that, you realize how small the percentage we're talking about. But the way the media presented, it, you would think we're facing a massive epidemic of cops shooting unarmed black people just all around the country. It's just not true. And the reality of matter is this whole thing with Black Lives Matter and all the stuff we're seeing, is just being hyped up because we're in an election year and the Democrats are desperate because they know their candidate sucks, and that's the reality. And so they're trying to find any other outside issue to use to try to help the guy beat the defeat Trump because they know in a normal setting they can't beat the guy because they got a candidate who doesn't even know where he is and the guy's got dementia. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with you about the, the... – the hard numbers of when you start talking about there's over 800,000 law enforcement professionals in this country. Now, not all of those are working on the streets where they interact, but like you said, 40 million contacts a year, that seems almost low to me when you think about the number of police officers we have. Um, It is a very small minority of those contacts, I mean, almost infinitesimal that lead to this kind of behavior but when you flip the numbers around a little bit and and take the number of police shootings lead to a death and do it by uh, per million population for white people versus black people and it and then it stands out quite differently and what you find is there's a far greater percentage of the black population, and particularly the black male population, if you compare it to even white male population, um, that has suffered a death. You know, in comparison, when you do it in a, in a population-based manner. So, as they looked at numbers, flipped around, they look at it as this disproportionate uh, issue of violence against black people. So, you know, while I agree with you that, yes, it is a small, tiny percentage, and, and the vast majority of cops, and my brother-in-law was a Dover City policeman that just retired as a sergeant, so, I, I you know, I have cops, and in in very close to the sheriff's office, and all our cops here in, in, in the local area are great people, and they became cops because they understood they wanted to serve and they understood that every time 911's called and they respond, the people they're responding to are probably in the highest level of stress of their lives they've ever been in. You don't call the cops when you're calm. You know, you're you're calling the cops because you're really upset. (laughs) And, And there's something going on that you want somebody to fix. And they're always, they know they're always responding into that situation And they're there to help people get beyond that and to de-escalate and all. And so, yeah, I I agree that some of this is being uh, uh, hijacked and blown up. I think the folks that are calling for the defunding are not even folks that were originally connected with Black Lives Matter. But it doesn't change the fact that we shouldn't at least acknowledge from a black person's point of view how they see what was going on and what that video did to them internally, you know,
0: of George Floyd. um, I just want to push back on one thing you said there, because you mentioned the disproportionate number of uh, black people that are killed by cops. You know, you cited that number where it's something around the range of something like 2000 whites were killed by police officers and about a thousand blacks were killed. Now, what people also take into account, and I'm saying this, I'm a black man myself, so I'm speaking from this from this perspective as well, is that black men, which are about, so blacks in general are 13% of the population, right? And out of that, mm. black men make up about 6% of the U.S. population, 6%. Now, the reason there's a yeah. the disproportionate number of black men that are involved with police getting shooting at them is because black people, the reality is they commit crimes at a far greater level than any other group in this country that 6% of the population that, are, that, that accounts for black men account for about 44% of the murders in this country, 44%. For, they account for about 40% of all thefts and aggravated assaults as well. So when you're talking about a group of people, specifically young black men between the ages of 16 and 24, that a lot of them are committing violent crimes. By, by violent crime, I'm talking about gangbanging, drug dealing, aggravated assault, aggravated robbery. And the police are having to deal with these individuals on a frequent basis. The fact that that number is so low says something. Now, the flip side of that, you can also point out, is that a police officer is 18 times more likely to be shot by a black man than a a police officer would be to shoot a black person. So people got to be honest about these numbers. And what we got going on is we have a group of race hustlers who their entire – they have a cottage industry on race grievances, which they use for their own gain, which they have no interest whatsoever of solving, or actually bringing constructive ideas that would actually better black people and get them to a state where they're no longer dependent or in this victimized mentality that they have. The reality of the matter is these people take advantage of this because this is the last frontier for them. If you look at society, we've gotten rid of most of what we would deem systematic racism. Legally, in the workplace, almost everywhere. So this is the last little thing they have to cling on to. That's why they're hyping it up. But the reality is the numbers prove it's not that big of a deal. It shows that most cops are actually professional. They're not racist. They're not abusing and beating up black people indiscriminately for no reason. And the vast majority of these so-called police brutality cases involve individuals who are resisting arrest. Almost all of them, with the exception of maybe one or two. So people got to be honest about this. And then I and again, I stress, this is being hyped up for one reason and one reason only. It's because it's an election year. If the Democrats yeah. were not as desperate as they were, they wouldn't have got involved the way they have. I'd be using this, and even the pandemic, both combined is for a political game Because people got to be honest, before the coronavirus hit and before this whole incident with George Floyd, what were the chances you thought that Joe Biden would, would beat Trump in November, honestly? Not very big. (laughs) Yeah. Very small. And so, and they know that, right? So what do they realize? They said, okay, the the famous words of Rahm Emanuel, Obama's former assistant and the former mayor of Chicago, what did he say? Never take, let a crisis go away uh, for granted, right? You always take advantage of it using an opportunity. And that's what they've done. So I guarantee you, if a Democrat were to win in November, we would never again, we wouldn't hear about police brutality for four years. Well, they wouldn't say another word of it. They only bring these things uh, up because it, all of it is designed to get the black
1: vote out. yeah it, it well it's interesting because you know during the Obama administration was when this whole movement started, so I, that that's kind of a i'm I'm not quite sure that that that's going true, but I do agree with you on one thing that's this the politics of division and dividing us by by victimhood groups has been a, a trait of the Democrat Party um, for a long time, and it's something I've spoken about on this show before, which I terribly dislike because there's a certain amount of prejudice in assigning um, homogeneity, you know, you know, making a group homogeneous as a victimhood, you know, you know, whether it's blacks or whether it's gay, Or women, you know, they they divide you into a group and say, you've been victimized by the man and and, you you need to vote for us because we're the only ones that are going to protect you. You know, and they keep dividing us into smaller and smaller groups, you know, know, that that do that all the time. Um, But I do. um, Do Do they have another option?
0: That's all they have left to do. Yeah, because well, their ideas are bad. Like, can you can you name it, a solid Democratic policy on economics, on foreign policy, on anything that's legitimate that could hold up under any real scrutiny?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and for us that are more conservative, you know, it's easy for us to say that, um, and, and that. But there are other places. Well, it's,
0: it's not it's not a matter of being conservative; man. that's just common sense. I
1: mean, you, yeah. if,
0: I, if I were to ask you, put put your political ideology aside. And I would say when it comes to the economy, what would be better for the economy, higher taxes and more regulation or lower taxes and less regulation? Just on base common sense, what would the answer be?
1: Yeah, lower taxes, less regulation.
0: Bingo. Now, if I were to say when it comes to, say, foreign policy, should we adopt the position of weakness and strengthen our enemies, or should we adopt the position of strength to deter our enemies from wanting to rise up against us? What do you think we should do?
1: Yeah. You always work from a position of strength. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So, but, so and, then that and shows
0: you the reason that Democrats use this whole politics of division and, and identity politics is because that's their way of demonizing their opponents and not have to make an argument for their bad ideas. Because now they can just accuse yeah. you of being a racist, a bigot, a sexist, a homophobe. And by doing that, they can demonize you, therefore discredit you, therefore they don't even have to, they don't even have to make an argument for their ideas or, dis, or prove your ideas are bad. Because, and that's the yeah. fact. Because their ideas suck and everybody knows it, but they get to hide behind the shield of, oh, we're in this for the poor and the weak, which we know they're not. But that's their way of you know, keeping any real scrutiny from what they actually want to do, and that's the reality. And the last thing I'll ask is yeah. what about with healthcare. Is it can America afford to have a Medicare for all system? Yes or no?
1: No, because it just leads to, to rationing. Exactly, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to the
0: strictly cost. the cost, right? Yeah, You've heard that the costs yeah. are anywhere from three to oh, yeah. upwards of seven trillion a year, which would be yeah. more than our current entire federal budget.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've talked so, in the past about the concept of, of price illusion in our healthcare system and why that's driving. The, the problems with our health care and not not the fact that it's private, private health care. Um, and if you go to single payer, which they want to do uh, Medicare for all, you just make price illusion even worse and you just end up having to, um, you know, ration health care. And, and that's right. what they do in countries that have gone to that single payer system. You wait. You don't get any replacement when you need it. You get it a year and a half from now. And, and right. you know, well, what's interesting is COVID actually caused a lot of people to have to do what other countries are doing. I have a friend that was scheduled the day they, they, they did the stay at home here in Oregon and, and closed down the hospitals was the day he was supposed to get his hip replaced. And he just got his the replacement when they reopened under phase one about a week and a half ago. But he had to wait several months with this hip that was giving him horrible pain. Um, right. but that's typical of what happens in socialized medicine countries. Because when you make it free, there's unlimited demand because they right. because you get what's called price illusion, you know. <laughs> you have but, a price, but, it's,
0: but it's not free too. That's the other thing.
1: Is they don't even have yeah. the decency to actually tell the
0: American people what this will actually cost. You know, I, I always yep. hear, like, you know, young, you know, you hear these young progressives always point to Scandinavia. They talk about Norway, Sweden, Denmark, so forth. And I always ask them, do you have any idea what the tax rates are in these countries? And most of them don't have a clue. Most of them don't even know that people who pay, who make, like, 50000 a year can pay up to 46% in income tax. That so they have a 25% VAT tax on all goods, which is the equivalent of a sales tax on everything that the taxes are sky high, or they don't even know that in Canada everyone pays the payroll tax. So it's the middle class that pays the bulk of the actual cost of the health care. But these, 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 I don't know what to call them. They're just numb nuts that think that you can, that they're going to get this health care system, all these goodies, and it's going to be subsidized by taxing the 1% in corporations. They're living in a fantasy world, man. And the fact that these people are allowed to vote is, is what I'm worried about the future of our country. Because if this is what we're headed down to, if we got people who, who fall for this kind of nonsense and actually believe this, what the hell kind of country are we going to have in like 20 years? I mean, seriously, man. It makes you call into question why, now you understand why they didn't allow women to vote back in the day. This isn't a sexist thing. I'm just part, keeping it real. It's like liberal, liberal ideas only work with people who have emotion-based thinking. Who 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 buying into emotional appeals and allow their emotions to suspend logic and reason. That's the only way you could fall for this these liberal ideas. That's why you know you either have to be young and and naive, or or a woman to to believe this stuff. Because it just I, I mean I don't see how anyone could believe these are good ideas.
1: Yeah, my my wife might disagree with you on that on that, but. <laughs>
0: No, I mean, and, and, I'm just saying the numbers prove it, right? Uh, Look at the percentage of women that vote Democratic versus men. Men overwhelmingly vote Republican, and women vote Democrat. I mean, think about the Democratic – what is a Democratic base? It's mostly women, white women, and it's minorities. That's basically the prime – that's their base as a whole. Is it not? Yeah. That, yeah and and I, so I, that's I, why I, their agenda is emotional appeals for women, to get women to vote for them and then victimhood and identity politics to get minorities to vote for them. And that's it. You take that away. They have no argument. They have no case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my, you know, going back to the black lives matter um, and you, you cited some statistics about um, the number of blacks involved in crime and murders, et cetera. One of the counter arguments to that, you know, Playing a little bit of devil's advocate here is that our policies that have impoverished the black people have caused that crime rate to be you know so highly such a high percentage of blacks because they're having to live in poverty in inner cities and um, it's crimes of survival so to speak um, what do you, what do you think of the, the the pushback I get from folks that when you point out some of those kind of statistics they're like well, racist policies have caused the impoverishment of the black people. And that's why there's such a high criminality in black people and why we have so many contacts with police. Right. So I, okay,
0: this is where as a black person, I would always say to them, if you know, actual black history, that you would, you wouldn't believe that argument. Because if you go back to the 1800s, early 1900s, all the way up to 1960, the, the level of black crime in America was very low. And even within the black community itself, for example, the single motherhood rate was extremely low. And the whole concept of murder, theft, robbery, all those things were non-existent, right? If, If you know how, from a black cultural perspective, most white people back then were strong Christians. The church had a heavy influence in the community. People believed, like, having children out of wedlock was wrong. If you got a woman pregnant, you were expected to marry her immediately. The community would pressure you to do it. And there was a certain moral accountability which came from the church that flowed throughout the whole community. And so what I would say to anyone is, is America more racist now than it was, say, in 1960? Would you say that it is, or would you say things have gotten
1: significantly better? I think they've gotten a lot better. I I lived outside of D.C. in the 60s. Okay, so then if you compare
0: 1960 to now, Back then, 20% of uh, black children were born out of wedlock. Now it's 75%. 75%. If that doesn't tell you the moral condition of the community, where people are mentally, that's to let you know everything you know right there. When it talks about the black high school graduation rate that was somewhere above 95% prior to 1960 and is now below, I think it's down to 40 or 35%, the amount of black kids that in, in their actual grades, that grade like whether it be third, fourth, fifth grade, that are can't even read at that level. Or you got even people are graduating high school that can't that can't pass a second grade reading level when prior to nineteen sixty blacks had this performing some of the highest academic standards in the country among the different ethnic groups. All these things have nothing to do with racism or race. This is a reflection of people's own character and what they do in their own lives and the bad decisions they make. Right, It wasn't because of some outside force that a man decides I'm not going to take care of my children and I'm going, to, I'm going to let them live dependent on the state. So what we got going on is people have, because of these civil rights leaders, so-called, they've so indoctrinated the black community with such victim thinking that it's allowed them to get rid of any personal responsibility whatsoever to the point where they think they're not accountable for their decisions and they have an excuse for every bad decision they make in their life. And that's why you see the behavior you see now. This is why you see the foolishness you see today, because the concept of earning respect and being a person of honor and character has completely went out the window. All that started in the mid '60s, and it's evolved to today, where it's just there's just there's no morality whatsoever left, none. So, people can say what they want to say, and they want they want to excuse whatever racism, all this nonsense. That's all a lie, because this country is far better today than it used to be you will be hard-pressed to find any real racial issues today that you can point to. And the opportunities that are available now, I mean, just look at the immigrants coming into America. You see them complaining about racism or all these systematic issues. They come in, they set up businesses, they grow, they flourish, their families flourish. That's the American way. But these people who want to be given everything, talking about reparations, they want more social benefits, all these government handouts, is because they've been conditioned to think as a victim. Condition to think that nothing they do is their own fault and all their failure in life is because of somebody else, some outside system. That's what's, that's what's been done to these people. So I don't know, man. I,
1: I really. Well, I, I, Mike, that was profound. And I want to really appreciate you for calling into the Bose nose show here. We're running out of time, so I'm going to have to okay. wrap it up here, but I really appreciate you calling and uh, call back again. It was a great conversation. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Bose Nose Show. We ran a little over because we can do that in Internet radio, but I think I need to get uh, myself back to to work, and I think my producer has things to do. So we're going to call it a day on the Bose Nose Show. We'll be back next week with another edition live from beautiful downtown Elmire, Oregon.